Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. My next guest is here to talk about an important topic that most of us feel a deep discomfort in even acknowledging. According to One in Six, an organization originally founded to provide resources for men who experience childhood sexual abuse, at least one in six men has been sexually abused or assaulted, many of them as children. And yet, very few men are willing or feel safe enough to share their stories, let alone receive the support needed to deal with the impact of those experiences. Brad Watson hopes to change this by sharing his own story. In his new book, Pray, The Secret That Almost Killed Me, he shares his own experiences of childhood sexual abuse, the ways he coped with those experiences, and the near-fatal consequences of keeping it all a secret. On a personal level, Brad identifies as a father, as a friend, and as a husband. I'm grateful for Brad's bravery and willingness to open the door for many other men. So let's hear more about this man, his story, and his experiences that have taught him about living in the new masculine. Welcome, Brad. Hey, Travis. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you. I uh, made it through the book. It's a big read. It's uh, it's quite a story, and I'm just so grateful that you are sharing it. Uh, something that feels personally important to acknowledge is is I, I love that we're sharing this story. My in my past career, I was a child protective services investigator, and I came into contact with a lot of children who were navigating this, navigating childhood abuse or sexual negative sexual experiences with parents, step parents, neighbors, other children. And so I'm, I feel really grateful that you're here to share this story um, because it was something that in part of my professional career, I felt a little helpless to know what to do to support, some, support the children that I was coming into contact with. So thank you for being willing to be here. You're welcome. And thanks for doing all that work. Um, mm. I think that's probably equally as, as difficult in parsing out family dynamics and, oh, it was dad or uncle or guy down the street. Um, you know, which in, in most cases that ends up being who it is anyway. And so um, there's a lot of dynamics there to deal with. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a challenging experience, but also not uh, personally impacted in the same way that I imagine you were. And, and as you share in the book, so set the stage for us a little bit, what was childhood like for you? What did you learn about being a man and what, what, what were the manly figures you saw in the world? I grew up in small town, Texas. Um, I think 
population 3,000, graduating class 101. And it was just what you would think um, by that description. It's kind of cowboy up and masculine men, um, man means tough. Um, don't, don't take crap off anyone. And, you know, something happens. If you have a problem, you fix it yourself and move on. And uh, guys definitely didn't really share feelings. Um, there was not much talk of scared, sad, no vulnerable talk, no weakness talk. Um, you know, that, that vulnerability from men was pretty much absent. And not that my dad was not like a hard, gruff kind of guy. He was, he was soft and open with us, but I, I don't know that I ever heard him say I'm scared or I'm sad. It, you know, typically men, a lot of times it, it comes out through actions instead. Um, so, you know, everyone I know drinks quite a bit. Everything is just kind of based around alcohol. And, and so people just kind of always have that shield. So you don't really have to talk about feelings that much. We just kind of, you just kind of drink about it, you just kind of, kind of get together and um, you don't really share real stuff, deep stuff. So in a way, you don't really get to know people, I guess, too. Um, I, I didn't see my dad cry until his dad died um, when I was already in my 20s, I think, early 20s. So um, that coupled with Die Hard and Rambo and all the typical, oh, okay, I should be able to just stitch my own arm up and not even really complain about it. Um, you know, just that kind of shaped what I thought being a guy was was supposed to be like and meant. It's so amazing, those those storylines that we see in the movies of the amount of grit that's just st stitching your arm together and getting back and continuing to fight and continuing to be as gruff as possible. It's so wild that that's, that's how we present men in this in our culture well and as you know dramatic as that seems on screen we somehow internalize that and go okay i should be more like that i should be tougher I should work out more I should look more like rambo and maybe back in our evolution somewhere um we had to go out and fight for territory and and you know um hunt and kill mammoths and you know maybe that maybe those attributes were were needed back then but i think in today's world, it's 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 not so important to be that kind of of testosterone masculine. You know, I don't know that it serves us as it did once. Yeah, it's interesting. In some ways, I think we all know that these are movies and that these are characters and that it's not real. And yet, somehow, we still internalize those stories and those those archetypes as something we need to aspire to be and to live into. Yes, for sure. So you went through some really challenging childhood experiences. And so what did, how did growing up believing in this cowboy up, this grit, this uh, masculine, this version of masculinity, how did that impact the experiences that you were going through as a child? Um, I think, you know, the, the main thing is just not talking about feelings and having been sexually abused starting out really early. I think seven-ish was kind of my first memory, but then there's a flash every now and then of maybe even before that, but I, I can't put a scene together. I can't really come up with anything solid as to anything before that, but not being able to just go to someone and say, hey, this 
this thing is happening or this, this seems a little off or whatever. It, it just, it made me internalize it. It made me keep it inside. I didn't know why um, it, it was a trusted adult and it was just games. And it, I think that middle school, junior high age and still not feeling comfortable sharing or talking about, you know, things inside. Cause I, I felt pretty crazy by that time. Um, I think that was the biggest impact on me. It was just not feeling comfortable talking about things and not feeling okay bringing up anything that may make me seem weak or less than or not able to deal with my own stuff. And I should be able to deal with this. I should be able to handle this. Shouldn't bother other people with my stuff. And um, that was that was what really impacted me the most. That must have been incredibly hard to be holding all of that. You share a lot of details in the book about your childhood sexual abuse. Can you set the stage for us a little bit? One of the things I know that keeps these conversations sort of out of reach and that keeps them, the people keeping them in the background rather than actually addressing them is the fact that we don't actually talk about who are the likely perpetrators, who, what, how these things come about. Can you set the stage for us and share a little bit of your own experiences? Yeah, for sure. I you know, it was that trusted neighbor, that guy that that you feel completely comfortable with as a parent, sending your kids anywhere with fishing or, you know, I, I slept in the, the same bed with him on certain occasions with my family in the room um, at hunting camp and stuff. So you, I just, I've said this to you in other conversations, I, I don't think it's something you can hone in on beforehand. To me, um, as a child, it just seemed normal. It was just games. And it was a, a kind of evolved frisbee game or an involved hunting game or involved fishing game or something where he saw that I enjoyed it and, and loved that activity. And then he took that and made it into a, a segue into what he wanted to do with me. And so I don't know how you, I don't know how you see that beforehand. Um, you, you know, you can be suspicious of every neighbor, every uncle, every coach, every pastor, every scout leader, every, everything. Um, but eventually your kids are going to go be with someone that that's going to, um, that's going to be a predator and you're not going to know it. So I kind of go back to the, if I could have shared with someone, if I could have talked to someone, um, when I was seventh grade, eighth grade, something like that, my hands, they, they just sweat like profusely, like dripping off. And my mom took me to the doctor and got, I got some like roll on antiperspirant from my hands. And the doctor didn't ask me like, wow, like, why are you so anxious? You know, are you nervous? It was just, Oh, you're sweating. We're going to put this antiperspirant on your hands. And um, so I wish he would have been more curious. I wish, I wish my parents would have been more curious. Um, and again, I don't blame my parents for any of this. They, they couldn't have known. Um, and looking back and I have a very vivid memory. Um, you read the book. It's, it's detailed. All that stuff is just so like real to me. I don't know that I would have done anything different than my parents back then. What I do different today is I just, my kids are super, super open and we talk about everything. And, 
sometimes that even feels overbearing as a parent, like I'm tired, I'm whatever, but they, they know they can come to us at any time with anything and we will listen and it's uncomfortable. But, um, just the way I grew up, um, it was, it was easy, easy for my abuser, um, to isolate me and get me playing these games and, um, continue that for a few years. And he did. And no one, I mean, the red flags that I look back on, like, like my parents coming home and my abuser and, and me in the front bedroom. Um, and then kind of being surprised and kind of walking out and, oh, well, we were just taking a nap. That's, that's, <laughs> you know, that's a huge red flag. Like a 10, a, a guy that's 10 years older than your, your child, um, taking a nap in your house with your child. Um, so just things like that. Um, and you know, we just, my parents didn't know. You just don't expect that the, the trusted people in your life, the, the nice people are going to do bad things, but they do. Yeah. I found myself struck while reading, uh, the chapters that sort of address this portion of your life how much anxiety you were facing as a child. I think that something that's written so well into the book is you get italicized language that that helps us as the reader really know what's going on inside of your head while these experiences are happening. And I think one of the things that you that I noticed and was so aware of was how much fear you had of people finding out and people knowing your family knowing there was a it was a clearly a well known that you need it to you that it needed to be a secret and yet you still didn't know truly what was happening to you i don't know that it, was it true to say that you didn't classify that as sexual abuse when it was happening to you as a child oh yeah totally um touching is touching at that age whether it's genitals or forehead you're you're just being touched and it either feels good or it doesn't and just having it be normalized and you know that's what that's where the grooming comes in it just it just feels normal um you don't really know what's happening you don't know that it's in any way bad but i think i think all kids have a little bit of anxiety about things and stuff and just you're learning all this new stuff but even though i didn't know it was sex even though i didn't know it was sexual abuse I think a child at five, six, seven, eight, you know, whatever, 10, I think there's something inherent in us. We, we know that it's wrong. And maybe it's just because he asked me to keep it secret and, you know, well, we don't want to have to go over the rules again with the other kids or your parents will be angry because, you know, yada, yada, whatever. Maybe just because he asked me to keep a secret made it seem wrong to me or something in me just knew that what we were doing wasn't right because you know it's just not normal for a seven-year-old to to be having sex with someone at all you know so i don't know which of those scenarios is the more powerful there but it's it i knew something was wrong i knew there was it there was just this i felt i felt like i was doing something wrong i felt guilt and shame at that young age um more so than I think most kids at that age do. Yeah. And it seemed clear through the writing that there was some confusion in that too, because you felt all this fear and guilt and anxiety around all of it. And yet there was a part of you that, that appreciated the attention that you were getting that felt 
special in some way to someone and that that sought this person out even though you really did not want those kinds of experiences to happen can you speak a little to that confusion yeah and i think that's one of the reasons we we don't tell when we get a little older and find out what actually happens um like in my case maybe i maybe i brought it on maybe i asked for it maybe I should have known better. Maybe I should have said no. Um, maybe I shouldn't have enjoyed it because there is, you know, it feels good and it doesn't matter how old you are at that age. You don't know that it's sex. So it, the act itself, you don't know that that's wrong. You just know the feelings and especially the attention, especially the extra attention, the hanging out with someone that's, you know, 10 years older than you and and having them talk to you like an adult and talk to you like you're cool and and treat you like you're you're on their level um you just you feel awesome that feels great and again i didn't know where the the shame and guilt and those feelings were coming from i just knew they were there and i didn't really have an outlet for them. I didn't have a place to just go and go, wow, I feel anxious. That wasn't even a word back then, <laughs> at least where I grew up. There was like anxious, you know, I, I feel scared. And I, I remember being hypersensitive to things and criticism and, you know, teachers, coaches, parents, I, I was super sensitive. And I think that had a lot to do with it. I think I just had this anxiety in me that kind of set me off when someone criticized me or, or asked me to do something again. You know, I, I just, it's just all this big ball of kind of feelings and who knows what comes first, but it's all, it all just gets tangled up in the abuse. And, um, I just didn't have an outlet for it. I know so many people these days, especially here in, um, in Portland, middle school and high school kids have, you know, therapists and they go talk and it, it's, we look for those signs of something going on. And, and I think, you know, even with social media, my kids just feel, they just like, Hey, I feel crazy or I feel scared or I feel really upset right now. I'm angry. And it's like, then we can talk about that. Like, why do you feel that way? Um, is there an obvious cause for it? Or is it just, you know, something that's been building up and, you know, if, if kids need therapy, they get it. Um, that wasn't a thing where I grew up. Like it, like therapy was admitting defeat. Mm. Like you're, there's something wrong with you. Like you're crazy. You can't handle your own stuff. You need to go to therapy. Um, that it was kind of a admitting defeat, kind of a weakness kind of thing. If someone went to therapy, they had to go like to the mental hospital to talk to a counselor. That was yeah. kind of the resource available back then, you know? So yeah, it's wild how much things have changed over time in regarding this. And yet it's also still very apparent to me how many men still feel that way, that it's failure to need a therapist, that it's a admitting defeat that you when you hit that place of actually needing a therapist. How did you as a child cope with all of those, all of that anxiety that you were experiencing since you didn't have help, since you couldn't share? What were the ways that you were coping? I would say, I mean, we were very physical back then. We, we did a lot of stuff outdoors. And I think just being able to let off 
steam, let off emotion, let off anger, frustration, whatever, climbing trees, riding my bike, swimming in the river, um, breaking things, building things. Um, but I also had the, the, the abusive, um, kind of those typical things you see in abused children. Um, I, I ended up cutting, um, that I don't even remember exactly when that came in age wise, but I have to go back and read the book cause it's pretty chronological, but it's like, I, I felt a certain release and a certain control there that a lot of people don't understand. And it's kind of like, I feel this pain inside and it's coming from somewhere else. It's coming from someone else or something else, but I can create this pain and I'm in complete control of it and no one can do anything about it. And I can, I don't have to tell you, I don't have to, no one knows but me. And when that pain happens, my heart rate drop 10 beats and my breathing gets calm. And um, even today as an adult, like pain, there's something about pain that it's almost calming to me. If I get injured, if I cut, if I have blood somewhere, I'm just like, oh, it doesn't freak me out. It's, 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 I don't know, it's this weird, this weird thing, but that was one of my main outlets. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm appreciating it. I think it's important for the listeners to really know what you mean by cutting. Um, it's become a term that a lot of people know about and yet some people don't. And I think that my experience is we typically associated cutting behavior causing physical damage to the body to deal with the emotional pain. Oftentimes we see it more manifesting in, in young girls and less in boys. And so I'm really interested to hear what that actually was for you. What is, how did cutting show up for you in your life? I was out in the woods just doing something and um, I cut myself across my arm. And I was very anxious and very angry. And there's a scene in the book and we won't go into the complete details of it. But I, I remember an incident and I had anger and I felt aggressive and I went out in the woods and I cut myself by accident. And I just remember the feeling of like, oh, my God, like and I looked down and I saw the blood and then the sweat was dripping into the cut. And it it was like almost exhilarating. It was just instantaneous like relief from my feelings they went away i wasn't angry anymore i wasn't i wasn't anxious i wasn't frustrated and the next time i felt that way um i don't remember a few days later a week later whatever um i went back to that same cut and then it just became a thing and it was either a sharpened paper clip or a nail or a knife or whatever, whatever I had at the time. And I, I had little tools that I would keep around um, in my closet. But once it happened once, it was, it was a, a go-to. It was a, this pain trumps that pain. Mm. I can make this hurt as bad as I need to, to make the other pain go away. Wow. Kind of how I would describe it. And, and I'm in control of this. And when I've had enough, I've had enough but I can do it enough and I can do it long enough and hard enough to make me forget about the other. And it, it was like a pressure relief valve, like just completely just, and I mean, it was just, that's, that's, that's the best way I can describe it. It's just, I can make that pain go away by causing this pain to myself, but this pain began to not be, it didn't hurt anymore. It was, it was, it was calming. Yeah. Thank you for describing in such clear detail. Cause I think that's an important piece that 
when someone is not in that much emotional pain, it's hard to understand why somebody would cause themselves physical pain. But that makes a lot of sense that you, it gave you a sense of control and it gave you the ability to disconnect from the emotional internal pain because there was a, a physical pain attached to it that actually soothed you and calmed you in some strange way. Strange so, way. And what you just said something key. A lot of people never get into a state of emotional pain or angst like I was. Mm -hmm. And so to try to completely understand why I would cut myself is, it's a fool's errand. You're never going to completely understand it. You don't need to, and you don't have to. Yeah. It's the same as like, oh my God, why would that person kill themselves? They had everything going for them. You will never be able to go there in your mind. I've been there, but you, if, unless you've experienced that kind of pain, that kind of anxiety, that kind of, of life stress, you won't be able to understand. Yeah. You will never be able to make the jump to, well, I'll just end it all. It'll be better for everyone and I won't have to feel this way anymore. It, it, it doesn't seem like an option to most people. So that's kind of key in all of this is if a kid is cutting, a lot of times they get scolded, you know, stop, why are you doing that? And it's like this, like, I need to, to teach you not to do that. Or that's, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. And it's be curious. Like, why are you doing that? What is going on in your head? Has something happened to you? It doesn't have to be sexual abuse. It can be anything. Um, even these days, just, just online bullying or mm. that stuff could cause someone to have enough anxiety to do that. Enough fear, enough, you know, loathing of themselves is kind of what it boils down to is I hate myself. I loathe myself. So everyone else must feel that way about me. So they're just lying to me when they say they like me. They're just inviting me to the parties because they're trying to be nice. Um, you, you really start believing these things. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I'm glad you sort of laid it out in that way because uh, patterns that are created based in emotional trauma, emotional pain, physical trauma, like any of those kinds of trauma patterns that exist within, within many people, within many men in this world, they're not rational or logical. They don't make sense to the rational mind that's not in trauma the ways of coping with it. And I appreciate you sort of really clearly delineating that it's it's okay that people don't get it, can't actually get into that mindset because in order to do so, you have to go to that place of how much pain you were in. And obviously, we don't really want to invite people into that no. level of pain. <laughs> I don't want you to go there. I just want yeah. you to have sympathy and empathy and, and just understand that, oh, okay, because that's not real for me doesn't mean it's not real for someone else. And yeah. I think that, that that goes into so many areas of, mm -hmm. of, you know, just our society. But if I don't understand that, it must be bad or wrong or whatever. And it's like you don't you don't have to be able to feel it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have the same secret that you did growing up as a little kid. I didn't have I didn't navigate personally um, childhood sexual abuse. But I do know what it's like to keep a secret as a child that is so harmful for you being a gay boy in this world. Um, trying to hide, trying not to be seen, trying to stay safe in that way and how how dark it got emotionally for me trying to hold that secret. And so it's, I think it's important what you're talking about that we often do with little boys when parenting styles with little boys often are about like um, correcting behavior, punishing for something 
rather than starting from a place of curiosity and wondering what's underlying that, why is this happening? Um, as you were saying with your doctor that prescribed you roll on antiperspirant for your hands, rather than actually asking the question about why you were so anxious and what was causing that. I think there's a beautiful invitation that you're offering around how do we do better for kids in general, but how do we do better for boys? How do we be more curious? How do we find out what's actually happening rather than just treat the symptoms of it? Well, it's, it's that as a man setting an example for my son, my kids, other people's kids, um, that it's okay to talk about uncomfortable things. It's okay to have issues. It's okay to be vulnerable and just say, I'm really scared. I'm, I'm really nervous right now. I'm really anxious right now. Or I've got even, I don't understand what's going on. I just feel a certain way. I'm, it's making me feel this way, but I don't, can't even put a finger on it, but just being able to be open and talk about feelings and, and what, you know, vulnerability has been equated to weakness way all the way back. You don't, you don't want to share what's under the surface because then they will know what your weaknesses are and they can take advantage of that. And again, that may go back to some caveman, you know, part of us that, that served us back then. But, um, the way we can do better is just sharing more ourselves, being vulnerable ourselves, um, having and being willing to listen to these uncomfortable conversations, uncomfortable topics, um, things that might seem taboo. Someone needs to talk about that. Someone will need to talk about that. And, you know, I had a friend from high school reach out to me on Messenger and just say, well, you know, you said ask you anything. So are you saying everyone should share everything? You know, every, everybody should just talk about everything. And I could just kind of hear the tone. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not saying that. I don't think everyone should share everything. There's some things that people don't need to talk about, shouldn't talk about, whatever. But anyone should be able to share anything that that is. That is what I'm talking about here is, is there should be a place, an open place, a listening place for anyone that needs to talk about anything. And that doesn't happen in every family. It doesn't happen in every community, every school, every workplace, every, you know, whatever. And that's what I would love to change. Um, if you look online for sexual abuse, rape, crisis, there, there's just so many options for women but guys don't have many options. One in six is a great one. Uh, rain is a great one. Um, there's two or three other ones, but you just have to really look for those. It's, it's not just like, even if you called 911 and said, Oh my God, I feel crazy. Whatever. I was a boy. I was sexually abused. I don't know that they would know where to send you. I don't know that they would know what to tell you or, or, you know, whatever. It's like, we just haven't had, a ton of options historically. And, and I just want to talk about this and make this conversation a little more normal, a little less uncomfortable, if that makes any sense. Like, like, okay, yeah, I was sexually abused. It was a guy. And going back to what you said, growing, you were, you were a gay boy ha having to hide that, that plays into part of mine being sexually abused by a guy. Am I, am I gay? You know, am I, did I do something to bring this on? Did I somehow make this happen? Does it mean something about me? And why is, why is that even a thing? 
you know, um, why would it matter? And that's part of the conversation is we like the feminine part or the, the different gender or the different sexual identity or different, any of that stuff. It, it's all so there's so much judgment involved with all of it that I'm so terrified of being seen as gay that I'm, I'm never going to tell. Hmm. Um, I remember this one boy um, in my hometown who wanted to um, be a twirler and like the, the baton and, and the whole town was just like mortified and, and his mom advocated and, and he was actually, you know, out there on the field doing it. But I just remember people talking and just the, the words they used and the judgment and like, Oh my God, like how can, how can this happen in our town kind of thing? And it's like, that's all the example you need right there is I'm, I'm never going to talk about this. So just think of all of the, the gay boys out there, which that's your experience. And they're, they kill themselves. They cut themselves. They, they, they live this different alternative identity. You live this different alternative identity, hiding who you really are. And it's because we are not willing to, to just have this conversation and go, Hey, there's, there shouldn't be judgment there anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's such an important undercurrent of what you're sharing. And I appreciate you highlighting that piece around being a man with a male abuser, being a boy with a male abuser, what that, the impact that has on you and, and the identity crisis that can create for you and the questioning around that piece. There's such an important element of avoidance that we as boys are doing so often avoiding looking weak avoiding looking gay, avoiding looking girly, avoiding looking anything but manly. And it's so hard to live in this world when very few of us actually meet and match those hyper-masculine stereotypes that are out there. And so we spend our whole lives hiding the secret of who we actually are. And yours is a big, a bigger story that has trauma to it, but it also highlights it's also like a, a traumatic and, and a louder version of what many men are facing at all points of their lives, which is hiding who they really are, keeping that a secret because of what that means to everybody else out there in the world. I can, as you were sharing the story about the, the boy who wanted to be a baton twirler, I was in marching band all the way through college and I am a gay person in the world. And I remember the judgments I had of the boys that wanted to be on the color guard, the flag line, or wanted to twirl a baton or play the piccolo. Like, even as a gay person in this world who was struggling and was hiding at that point, the amount of internalized homophobia and fear and hiding that I was projecting out and judging with was pretty intense. And so I think there's so many of us are experiencing that and trying to avoid appearing a certain way. Well, someone like you. That it's a, it's a complete life thing for you. Someone like me that has been abused by a guy that is trying to make up for that. I'm going to be the manliest dude you've ever seen. I'm going to sleep with all the girls. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make sure everyone knows that I'm a guy. I'm a man. I'm a dude. It, there's so much, even, even little subtle things. If you would just think about that, like guys probably don't wear certain colors that they like or certain clothes that they like or certain kinds of shoes that they might really like because it might appear that it's feminine or gay or any of these other, you know, negative terms that we use or, or negative, you know, things and connotations that we kind of put on things. It, it probably 
that's another conversation. It's like, you know, just manly guys that might like a certain shirt, but it's too flowy or the wrong color or, you know, whatever. It's like that, that I think about that stuff all the time. I'm just like people, people live by these rules, these fake rules that we've, we've created and these impressions we have about certain things. And it, it drives so much of what we do, so much of, of how we talk. And it, it, I just, I just think it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous and, and harmful to be yeah. honest. It's, it's beyond, beyond just kind of like absurd. It's actually harmful to many men and there it's harmful. There's a reason why there's such a mental health crisis among men right now. And there's a huge suicide epidemic happening amongst men is because we teach men to reject parts of themselves in order to belong and fit in in this world. We kids learn really early on how to divorce themselves from anything that makes them appear less manly, to appear feminine, to appear a soft, weak, vulnerable, any of those things. And so we spend a whole lifetime constructing identities that are actually not really authentic or in alignment for us. And then we're coping the rest of our life by trying to hide keeping the thing, the secret from coming out as you experience, like keeping yeah. the secret from coming out is harmful. I mean, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Like, yeah. I mean, let you learn early. It's not okay to cry. You're not even supposed to cry. You know I mean? It's like, and yeah, I understand sometimes the crying is just a kid, you know, using crying to get something, whatever, whatever. But it, the, the lesson is, is learned early. It's, it's taught to us. Um, you just, you don't cry. You just get up, shake it off and move on. And again, that has served us in some ways up to a point, but then today it's just, you know, we're not, we're not, um, hunting mammoth and, and, you know, um, trying to, um, gain territory for, for, for our little clan of people here anymore. It's, it's, everything's different now. It just, there's certain things that just don't serve us anymore. And, um, I think that's also key for guys is finding other outlets for that kind of testosterone buildup that happens um, naturally. It's like I I'm a, I rock climb and I've worked out and ran and I think I'm kind of high testosterone. I have I have that that energy level, and if I don't find an outlet for that on a regular basis, I do get cranky. I do get irritable. I do get kind of this edginess about me, and I start feeling like angry at things that I wouldn't feel angry about. So through those other tools, you know, exercise and and I meditate and I do other things, but I think physical outlet for me is, is really key. Yeah. I, I know myself to be a better person when I've uh, exhausted myself physically a little better. <laughs> I'm better mental health wise for sure. Um, so I know we've talked a little bit, part of the book and we've talked about it a little bit is discussing the actual experiences that happened to you that created that sort of trauma that, that you held for a long time and created the secret. You have alluded a little bit to um, coping by having sex with every girl that you could possibly have to prove your manliness. We, you talked a little bit about how the cutting moved even further into drugs and alcohol as a way of coping with it. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the consequences were longer term for you um, at, from keeping the secret? The books, the, the back two thirds of the book start to really address that and to really share the anxiety you were facing, even in those moments where you were trying to prove your manlyhood. Um, I think it's important for us to know like how potentially how dark it got for you. Yeah. Once, once I found um, 
self-medication. <laughs> once, once I found drinking, um, it, I, it just numbed all of that chatter for me in the back of my head. And it really allowed me to kind of feel normal, to feel loose, to feel like I was part of the crowd. I fit in and that just kind of transitioned into if, if you had it, I would do it. If I was drinking and someone had some Coke or some meth, you know, we called it crank back then, like whatever. I don't, I even snorted heroin. Like if you had it, I would do it. Um, there was nothing I wouldn't do. I, I like to take risks, um, you know, jumping off the river bridge, doing things like that. But the constant proving and reproving my manliness um, once I started drinking and once we hit that, that freshman sophomore year, um, I, I would never say no to, to a girl. Um, and, you know, I had a girlfriend and it, it pretty much wrecked that relationship. It wrecked a lot of other relationships. Um, I, I mean, no matter where I was, if I was, if I was out dancing or we were, you know, somewhere, if I was drinking a little bit, and someone propositioned me, I was, it was on. It didn't really matter who. And, and I'm amazed that I never contracted any, you know, serious STDs or anything like that, which I, I could have. I know I have friends that contracted AIDS back then, um, HIV and AIDS, and they are still, you know, some didn't make it. And there's one or two that are on medication and still alive living with that today. But I, I just was promiscuous as, as you can imagine and just um, never said no, no matter who I was dating, no matter what the status of my relationship was, if someone else female came on to me, I, there was something in me that, that had to do it. And if I said no, it would mean, you know, something's wrong. Maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe I'm, maybe I am gay, you know, maybe I am not, a normal man maybe maybe he really messed me up you know and i i it was kind of this i didn't want to i didn't want to let him win once i found out what happened to me it was like i i had to prove over and over again that he did not break me he he did not scar me for life kind of thing so it was kind of all those things rolled into one and drinking and drugging got totally out of hand and all of that got out of hand and Eventually, I just kind of got to that point where that wasn't working anymore. Um, you can only you can only drink until you pass out, and then you wake up again the next day. And um, I got to kind of an end point, a jumping off place where nothing was working. Drinking wasn't working. Drugging wasn't working. The the cutting wasn't working. So you know, I tried to kill myself twice, um, and then there will be. The second book will address, you, you know where the book stops. And there was a year or two after um, the end of the book that was that I kind of drug along that bottom. Um, things didn't necessarily get better right away. And that's when the, the dark days, the, the, I tried to kill myself again. And um, that's what I was talking about. Like it's, it all came to a head and I got to the point where I felt so bad about myself and I just knew that everyone else felt that way. And all I was doing was causing problems. I just kept cheating on my girlfriend and screwing her friends and then telling them that I want a relationship with them. And then it just, just, you know, that whole player kind of 
attitude and I, I just I just didn't have anything to live for. It was like I'm if this is all there is, then then I'm better off not destroying other people's lives and continually disappointing my parents and crashing my vehicle and you know, spending money and just waking up in the middle of the yard you know, on a Sunday morning. Um, it, you just get to this point where you're like, I'm, I'm done impacting other people's lives in a negative way. And so it's just better for me to go. Yeah. So you describe uh, one of your suicide attempts and, and, and in the, towards the end of the book and how that sort of catapulted you into making this no longer a secret. I mean, the title of the book is the secret that almost killed me. Like at what point did you make a decision? How old were you when you decided to keep bring it out of the secret, bring it out of the shadows and actually start talking about it? So I was 21 and I had tried to kill myself, but I did it in a way I didn't, I didn't want my parents to have that stigma of, Oh, my child committed suicide, you know, especially my mom for some reason. So I tried to make it look a certain way, like it would be an accident. After that failed attempt and kind of creating a backstory around that because I didn't want my mom to know that I was trying to kill myself. Um, it just, it just became too much like trying to, I still wanted to die, but the failed attempt, there was kind of this like, oh, okay, maybe I'm not supposed to die. So trying to keep the story straight and, and what happened and, you know, maybe some people are after me, maybe some people are trying to kill me, you know, whatever. I, I just one day, just, it just all welled up inside me. And I don't, I don't even really know why I told her, but I was just like, hey, you need to give me a ride to work today. And it was kind of out of the ordinary. And she's like, okay. And then I just, I just told, I said, look, I, I've been causing all this chaos, you know, it's, it's been me. And I think it might have something to do with the fact that I was sexually abused when I was little. And it was like for a few years that it happened. And so I told, and my mom was just super crushed, obviously like what, like, oh my God. And super empathetic sympathetic and and all the things you would want your mom to be and then we kind of addressed this with with my abuser's family and um he just said oh it was just teenage curiosity and kind of blew it off and so at that point it kind of got swept under the rug no one um came to me and said wow like that happens. Like, do you need counseling? Do you need therapy? Do you want to talk about it? It was just like, oh, I think the the authorities at the time, and this is also important because we we tend to do crazy shit. Like we we start drinking, we start drugging, we start, you know, burning burning stuff up and crashing our vehicles and getting DUIs and getting in fights and and when you come out with this underlying like angst and what you think like, okay, this probably has something to do with all the crazy stuff I'm doing. No one wakes up in the morning and just goes, I think I'm just going to be crazy today. I think I'm going to burn some stuff down and wreck my truck and get my third DWI and you know, whatever. Um, there's usually something going on that, that like, Hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Is there something you need to talk about kind of thing? But um, I got to that point of, I told nothing really happened. It kind of got brushed under the rug and 
then I had a couple of dark years after that um, because nothing happened. But the authorities kind of, I think, thought I was just trying to make an excuse. It was like, oh, okay, you did these things and you're just going to, this is your excuse. You're trying to get out of trouble kind of thing. Mm. And, which, you know, um, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why a 17 or 18 year old would be doing the things I was doing. Um, You know, what, why would someone do that? Why would you burn something up? Why would you crash your vehicle? Why would you, I mean, why would you do that? So there's the authority like, Hey, you need to stop doing these actions. You need to stop this stuff, you know, this destruction, whatever, which I understand that part. But, and I I think that's what happens to a lot of people. And I think that's also, you know, we've seen in, in even our politics, like victim blaming and shaming and all that, like, well, you're only saying this because you want attention or because you're trying to get out of trouble or because whatever. Um, It keeps people from kind of, kind of coming out and, and, like telling what actually happened to them because you just there's this little fear like they may not believe me and you know like my abuser was was 10 years older than me so when i was seven or eight he was already like senior in high school it would be his word against my word and then he's an adult by the time i come out and has a job and a family or whatever and so it's like hmm you did all this crazy stuff and now you're blaming that person for this. So who do we believe here? You have a record, you have DWIs and this, this, you drink a lot, you drug a lot, you know, whatever. That's a, that's a whole nother dynamic. Wow. That's incredibly heartbreaking. Um, to know that that was how that first bit of time, once you were willing to talk about what was going on, how that played out and to be seen, not as somebody coping with a traumatic traumatic events in their life, but to see, be seen as a crazy person or to be seen as a, as a menace in some way. And oh, not- it was worse because all of, I was ostracized, like in yeah. my small hometown, everyone knows everything, everybody knows everybody, you know, that kind of thing. And like all my friends, I say all, there were one or two that, that kind of stuck by me. And, um, I, I was just crazy dude. Nobody wanted to hang out with. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody wanted to party with you. Nobody wanted to do like, like anything. And it was like that. And that made it even worse. Like, mm. like the lack of anyone just feeling like they cared enough to ask me like, wow, what, what happened? Like, I know you said this. So what does that even mean? You know, what does sexual abuse mean? What happened to you kind of thing? Wow. I'm so sorry that that was your experience. I, I know and trust that you're in a better place <laughs> in your life currently, oh, oh. <laughs> but that, but that's absolutely heartbreaking and devastating to hear that that's that in your journey to find, to like, to bring out the secret that was killing you, that it, it caused actually years of more pain and more rejection. Um, that it's just it's quite devastating to hear. I think that's part of why I wrote the book. Um, that little boy, little Bradley needed to tell his story mm. and it's, it's on paper. It's in a book, read it, believe it or not. Here it is. Um, mm. this is the truth. And he just needed to, to get it out and, and scream about it. And, um, maybe the 20 something year old me also was like, Hey, here, here's, here's what happened. Here's the truth for all of the people that didn't ask. And 
again, I'm not blaming. It's just that's I might have done the same thing in the town that I grew up in, how I grew up. If if someone it's it's you know animals do that. <laughs> like the one animal that has like this one little thing wrong with them, the other ones will drive them out sometimes. Or you know, um, I might have done the same thing. I don't know. Mm. But so it's not a blamey thing. It's just um, here's the book. If, yeah. If you, if you don't know, now you know. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so after all of this, after the trauma of childhood, the all of the drug use, the cutting, the suicide attempts, then the rejections that come as you actually start to talk about what's really go what was really going on, what was the thing or what were what were what started to turn things around for you and to set you on a different trajectory with your life? It it was just it was actually one event. It was I was getting to the point again after telling and thinking that the clouds were going to part and my life was going to be great because I finally told my secret and all that. And then that not happening, I was getting to that, that jumping off place again and the drinking was getting like really, really bad. And I was doing harder drugs and I was like in neighborhoods that I, you know, just buying drugs and doing things that I always looked down on myself. Like, Oh, like, you know, those guys are drug addicts, you know, and I was partying with those guys now. Um, and I ended up driving back from the town nearest to my hometown. Um, I think it's 15, 16 miles away. Um, I drove back home one night on the wrong side of a split highway. I was on the, I was, I was driving westbound, I was driving eastbound in the westbound lane. And it was a split like median with trees and it, they were apart. And I was in the wrong one going all the way back for 15 or 16 miles. And I just, I ended up in jail the next morning and I didn't even know why I was there. It was like, you know, I kind of woke up and I'm like, what am I doing here? And, um, the, the guy said, you were, you drove the wrong way down highway 71, you know, back home basically. And we had calls and, um, three or four different near head on collisions kind of ha almost happened. And for some reason you stopped on the side of the highway and we picked you up and, um, I, I don't know. I just, something hit me at that moment. I was just like, I, I can't do this anymore. I don't know that suicide is really an option. So I just called my dad and I was just like, can you, find somewhere for me to go something I didn't know anything about AA I didn't know anything about drug and alcohol treatment again it just wasn't something that that was a thing um and I just said I need, I need somewhere I need something other than this so is there can you find a place or find something for me before you come get me and um he did he he went and found an outpatient treatment center for me and got me out of jail. We went immediately over there. I talked to um, my first actual counselor that I've ever talked to in my life uh, named Chicago George. And he just said, he just laughed at me while he was reading my paperwork. He said, you're going to die. You, you won't make it another year. And I was just like, I know, I already know that. So I'm here. And um, he just offered me empathy and caring. And, and he was just like, I feel you. I hear you. I've been there. I've, I've been you. I've been on skid row, like drinking sterno from a can trying to get a high. <laughs> He's like, I've been there. 
and anything you've done, I've done worse kind of thing. And so he got me on a 12 step thing and they had outpatient treatment and I did that for a while. And then um, surprisingly, the convenience stores did not stop selling alcohol. So every time I drive to work, I still had to drive by all these places where I would buy my, my beer on the way home. So I, I, I just, I still couldn't do it. So I checked myself into a 30 day inpatient treatment and that was kind of the game changer for me was actually talking about my sexual abuse, getting back to what happened, writing some letters, one to my abuser, um, one to my parents, one to my ex-girlfriend and just kind of burning those letters and forgiving myself. And it just kind of started this, this journey of um, sobriety. I've been sober since February 24th, 1993. Uh, part of that was 12 steps. Part of it is mindfulness, meditation, and a few other things I do, um, counseling and uh, therapy. And um, I still never really, you know, I've talked about my sexual abuse um, and I kind of talked to you about this before. Um, I've always mentioned it and talked about it and like, oh, this is a part of my journey. But until this book, um, I haven't really gone back and gotten back in character and really kind of internalized and realized what actually happened to me and just how sad I was for that little boy. Like, it infuriated me in one, one instance. And it was just like, all I just felt this sadness, like, like, wow, that happened to me. And there was nothing I could do. And there was, I, I didn't, I didn't know of any option. I didn't know of anything to make it go away or feel better. And reliving all of that in detail, in character, um, all the sights, sounds, smells, and everything that goes along with it. It was very healing, very difficult. And I'm on this side of it. I, I actually, it was actually kind of traumatizing for a bit. Like when I, when I put the whole story together and went, wow, <laughs> like I've never really gone back and went through a lot of that stuff. It was, and again, Mel helped me with that. Like just like I would write a chapter and, and um, send it to the editor and I would get like, okay, you're talking about the weather quite a bit here. What are you, what are you skirting? What, <laughs> what are you trying to get at here? What really needs to come out? You know, let's shape this a bit. And so I think the book has been the best therapy, the best healing for me that I've had to date with, with all of this. Hmm. I'm so glad that you finally found that ability to ask for help, to acknowledge where you couldn't do it alone, where you couldn't continue driving past those convenience stores and actually got the support that you needed and have continued to live a very different life than you sort of had growing up. When I asked you to sort of identify yourself in the sort of pre-interview questionnaire that I send out to people, two of your biggest identities you wrote were father and husband. What are the lessons that you bring from those experiences that you had? into your parenting or into your relationship with your wife? Learn, grow, be open and, and listen. And I definitely, definitely not perfect at it. Um, but just being willing myself to be vulnerable when something scares me to 
talk to my wife about being scared instead of letting it come out in some defensive, edgy way. Um, and that's still probably one of my my things that I work on the most is is I don't want to admit that I'm scared. I don't want to admit that I'm not perfect and that I don't I, I got this and I'm 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 Brad. It's it's handled, you know, and I've, I've had that issue at work when I worked for companies before is not being willing to give myself a break and make any mistakes, you know, um, so kind of letting that guard down and, and just admitting when I'm scared, when I'm angry, when I'm, when I'm anxious about something, um, and having that conversation, telling someone else, like, like I'm bothered by this or I'm scared by this. Um, and then allowing other people to talk to me about that and, not necessarily try to fix it or immediately have some sophisticated answer for it. Just, you know, sometimes you just need to tell someone that you're scared and just, they go, wow, I'm sorry. You're scared. I'm sorry. You're, you're anxious. I'm sorry. You're sad. You know, sad's a big one. Um, sad for me gets into that, kind of intertwined with almost depressed kind of whatever. And it's like, I hate feeling sad. So I do everything I can to not feel sad. And I don't let myself feel sad. I don't want anyone to know I'm sad. So I'm going to be like, Oh, I'm Steve Irwin today. You know, it's like, bam, and I'm on. And I'm, you know, so many people know me as like that energetic, like, you know, just here I am kind of person. And it's like, I have to check myself and go, all right, how do I feel today? And I have to remember that I feel things and that it's okay to feel things. And like, I'm just, damn sad today or whatever and be okay talking letting someone else know that like i want you to know that i'm sad today and you know sometimes you don't even know why it's just like i just feel a feeling and it's it's just there and my kids teach me this all the time um they talk about their feelings they they're good at calling me out you know if i'm if I'm trying to fix or if I'm not really listening or, you know, communicating um, in, a, in a constructive way, they they let me know pretty quick because they've grown up with the tools. And, you know, here in Portland, there's a, a mindfulness and meditation class in the high school and they learn nonviolent communication and listening skills and all that stuff. And so I think in the last four to five years, they've taught me a lot about communication. Um, Because like I said, until I wrote the book, I had talked about my abuse. I had talked about whatever, but I was like, hey, I got sober, living life. I'm successful. I'm doing the do. Got my own company and got a wife and kids and built a house and all that stuff. And um, there was still some work to be done. And I didn't know it at the time. I wrote the self-help book of, hey, you know, you want to be like me, <laughs> you want to be happy, joyous, free, you want to be sober. Well, look, I was sexually abused and here's what I do today. And this is, and, you know, I sent it, sent it to content editor Mel and it was like, nah, this, this needs to be deeper. This needs to be a memoir. I need to tell this story. And I credit her um, for kind of, putting me on this path and, and leading me in this direction of really getting back to this stuff and unpacking it and realizing what it meant to me, realizing what it did to me and, and being sad for that little dude, you know, like going back and going, damn, 
I like, wow, like, okay, that was like, I'm sad for that little guy, you know? And I think that's why I want to have this conversation with you. It's why I want to have this conversation with anybody that'll listen is I don't want any other little dudes out there that don't feel like they can talk about stuff because you're going to be scared. You're going to be angry. You're going to be sad. You're going to be all those things. And it's okay to talk about it. Doesn't make you weak. And telling someone, feeling the feelings doesn't make you weak. And telling someone about the feelings doesn't make you weak. That, that telling someone is that vulnerability, which has always been equated in, in historic, you know, masculinity terms as, as weak, vulnerable is weak. So I just want to change that narrative. Just want to flip that script. I love that. And I love this piece that you're talking about of this being a constant learner and letting other people lead you to something like you talk about, I think as men, we feel like we need to be in the leadership role and, and, and knowing where we're going and taking and bringing everybody with us. And yet you're, you're recognizing that your kids lead you sometimes or your, or your editor for the book helps lead you to the deeper understanding of what is really there, the authentic experience of what that little boy went through. And so I love that you have this uh, sort of juxtaposition of this part of you that has led a really beautiful adult life that has created a lot of really Im- amazing things in your life, but also continues to be led by others, to be given gifts by others and you being able to receive them. And it makes life so much better. I mean, yeah. what you said, like, we feel like we need to know and lead and be the one that like, especially in a family dynamic, like I'm dad, I should be able to tell you guys how it is and what it is and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But to be open to, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> you can Google it. We can find out together. But to, I mean, that is just not something that comes out of a lot of like guys mouths. I don't know. Right. No idea how to help you. I don't know. I'm here to listen. I love you. Sorry you're going through this, but I don't know. And even to be able to tell myself that sometimes is hard. Like, like I, I should know this, but I don't. And it's like, damn, why don't I know this? I should know this. You know, it's like, so I don't know. And then the other is like, it's okay to fail. It's okay to try something or think you're going to be this great communicator. And then, you know, eventually I get heated and I raise my voice and then, ah, then I feel horrible about myself for a day or a week. And it's like, wait, okay. It's practice. It's practice. It's practice. I still have those triggers. I still have those hardwired things in my brain. I still have that. It's better to be angry than scared. It's better to be angry than anxious or sad. So that's something I work on a lot is just trying to, to be better at communicating, better at listening and better at not going back to my old, like, okay, I can just raise my voice here and then I'm I'm in control of this conversation kind of thing. Yeah. Well, if there, if there are men listening to this who have experienced something similar to you and have never talked about it, or if they have acknowledged it and talked about it, but there's still work to do, what piece of advice would you give to those men who might be listening to this, who might be connecting to your story that might see themselves in you about what, what, what the next step to take is for them? do the work it it, like and everything that we just kind of hit on is is it's 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 work it's a lot of times it's it's being able to look at parts of myself that i do not like 
And it's just so easy to walk around and act like those parts of me aren't there, but they come out on everyone. Everybody knows they're there, mm. but I, I can either like deal with it and address it and, and work on it or not. And um, just being okay with vulnerability and talking about the uncomfortable thing. And, and you know, I would hope there's a, a safe, open place to do that. And that's kind of what I would love to, to create more of and, and what this is about, because there's not always that, but finding, looking for it. There are things out there. And I know you said you were going to link some stuff below and, and one in six is a great place to start even um, one in six.org, but find what you need and, and do the work and um, be willing to be open and you're going to feel the feelings regardless. So just being okay, sharing that and, and getting the help you need and talking about that stuff. Um, I don't, I've, I've met guys that, that just can't talk about it. They just can't. And so, you know, whether that's a defense mechanism, whether that's okay. Um, I would, I would say like finding that resource, finding that, that therapist, finding that group, finding that friend, and then maybe discovering and, and talking a little bit about, is it okay that I don't talk about this? You know, is there something I need to unpack or am I kind of, am I moved on? Am I beyond that? I know that was kind of four answers in one, but it was. No, it's helpful. This is a complex, complex issue. And it does really hit at some of the core things that are struggles for men. It, when someone has been sexually abused, it, it puts into question that person's masculinity, that their weakness or their strength. There's so many things that this topic forces men to look at in terms of their manhood in the world. And so I appreciate the complexity of your answer because it gives us an understanding that the work has to be done, that often it's needed to be within a safe space with others. It, it, it really can't be done alone. It's one of the things I talk about with my clients that so many of our traumas or so many of our hurts come from our interactions with other people. And therefore, we can't really heal those things solo by ourselves. You kind of have to heal them with other people. Um, a, a social wound can't be healed by isolating and, and disconnecting. Yeah, that was sure. key. What you said, you you can you can just pick a random person and start telling your stuff, and you you may be worse off afterwards. You For sure, not get what you think you need or what you're you're expecting back from them. So that's that that key part of it is finding the the right place, the right person, and when you're ready, talking about it. But even if you're not ready to talk about it, just knowing that you're not alone. Other people have gone through this. Um, and you're not at fault, <laughs> you know I mean? That for me, that was, that was one of the, the tough ones. And it's still, it's still under there. Mm. I know logically that I did not do anything to cause it. I know that it wasn't my fault, but there, it comes up in, in different situations and circumstances. There's that little, just constant guilt feeling that doesn't really make any sense. And it's like, I feel like I'm somehow responsible or at fault. And I think that's, that's key. You're not alone and you're, it wasn't your fault. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Brad, for being one of those spaces that is a safe space to talk about this, that is leading by sharing your own story. First, as you mentioned earlier, there are 
haven't historically been a lot of resources for men who have experienced this. And you've mentioned a few of them, and I'll make sure they're in the show notes for anybody that is looking for some resources to help them navigate and do the work on this kind of stuff. But I so appreciate that you are leading the way and opening this conversation and normalizing it and allowing us to have those sweaty palm conversations that you talked about and to not be afraid of them because they're real life experiences that we can't avoid and we can't not address. There's lots of consequences that come to them. So thank you for your book and for being here and sharing your story so that others feel safe to do so as well. I'd say the same to you. Thanks for being open with with who you are and what you are and where you are and just providing this platform um, for for me to talk about this. And I've listened to some other episodes and and they're all great. So Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If people want to find out more about you, want to find the book, how might they do so out there in the world? Um, Website is bradwatson.com. And I'm on social media, um, Facebook and Instagram, and I, I do post videos on there quite a bit. I, I since the book has has come out, I am putting out a little video content, I'm answering some questions people have, and just kind of kind of talking about these issues. And I, I like video format. I like I like talking about it. So um, I'm on all of those, and then the the book's available at Amazon. Um, you said you would link that um, yeah. also, so um, it's there. All that will be available for the listeners to find quite, quite easily. I definitely recommend the book. It, it, while it is a big and heavy story, there's lots of breathing space for the, for the listener. There's a lot of, um, it, it doesn't, it's not all trauma. It's not all just in your face. Um, the hardship of a person's life. There's also a lot of normalcy in the book too. That, that is quite a relief to know that you experienced as well. If people want to get in contact with me, you can go to my website at travisstock.com. You can email me directly at travisstock03 at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram at travers03. That's where a lot of the ongoing conversations of the new masculine are happening, so definitely follow me on Instagram at travers03. If you're interested in supporting the mission of the new masculine, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the new masculine. Again, that's patreon.com slash the new masculine. If you're interested in supporting financially the continued work and uh, that I'm doing here with the new masculine, please consider becoming a contributor. Thank you again so much, Brad, for being a part of this and for sharing your story and for bringing up this really important topic in the new masculine.